You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Funny. All right. I'm going on mute. Well, good morning. It's so good to see all of you as um, we're rolling in and nice to catch up and hear some stories from you guys uh, about what's been going on. Uh, I know we're all waiting um, with bated breath for uh, it to be safer and us to be able to meet together again in person. and we're gonna figure out how to incorporate a, a live component or a live streaming component because I know that so many of you have been connected from further away and it's been nice to reconnect with uh, those of you who've been a part of the community over the years and now are no longer in LA. So um, yeah, I suppose silver linings in this crazy year that we've had. Um, so today we're gonna to be spending some time talking um, specifically um, in response to, gosh, just the um, the huge increase um, and and instances again of um, gun violence and police brutality um, here in the United States, and I hesitate in talking about it because I, I almost don't even know how to do that because this has been something that's just so pervasive and always present. And yet it seems like the last few weeks have been um, even more so. Um, and you know, this is something that we talk about here at Central that we've kind of made a part of our identity and who we are as we talk about justice. Um, and, and transforming the culture and the world around us, what it means for us to be the body of Christ in the world. And um, so, you know, I'm particularly, I suppose, aware of how complicated and difficult it is for us to be isolated and alone as we talk about what to do moving forward. And so we're gonna spend time um, praying together. Um, we're gonna spend time talking about these things and Aaron's gonna be addressing all of this in his message this morning. Um, as we get started, I just, you may not even be aware of all of the things that have been happening if you don't follow the news exceptionally close. and. It's, excuse me, I have cats who are meowing at the door real quick because our little automatic lock is making noise. Nice. I have cats too. But I locked them out of. (laughs) There we go. Church is always interesting when there's everyone else around. Um, So all this comes in response to things like the Atlanta spa shootings, um, the Boulder, Colorado grocery store shooting, and then the three back-to-back shootings in Orange, California, Essex, Maryland, and Allen, Texas. Um, Then on top of that, there were shootings in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and at the Indianapolis FedEx facility um, that account for dozens, dozens of lives over the last month. 
and the major headlines over the last six weeks as well with Dante Wright in Minnesota, Matthew Williams in Georgia, Donovan W. Lynch in Virginia Beach, Marvin Scott in McKinney, Texas, and Terrell Wilson, who are all people who were shot by police or killed in police custody. Um, and that is just a partial list again. Um, and so maybe you feel overwhelmed by those things and about how we make a difference there. And that's where we are and what we're doing this morning. So in light of all of this in a world that just needs such an outpouring of love and justice, would you join me in prayer? The God of love, God of peace, God of reconciliation, and especially now, God of justice. We come together, a community of people gathered here in Los Angeles and around the world, not because we have everything figured out, not because we have a perfect understanding of spirituality and life in communion with you. We come as people committed to engaging the world in the ways of Jesus. Of looking at the systems around us, of seeing our blindness and our biases and working towards the full inclusion and justice of your people is that each one of us created in your image are here to create, to love, sustain, and hold each other. We're called to make sacrifices of ourselves for each other. And with large systemic issues, like police violence and mass shootings, we often don't know how to respond to those things. And yet you call us into a community that responds. Give us direction. Allow us to be comfort as we raise our voices to those who have lost. Allow us to work for transformation in our systems and in individual lives. Convict us and change us in ways big and small that we can truly come together and be your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I'm going to I'm share my screen and we'll be reading together um, a, a small liturgy. And this is a um, prayer that um, I think helps kind of encapsulate a little bit about what it means for us to be this uh, body of Christ moving and working in the world. Um, 
So this is called In Troubled Times. It's adapted from um, Stephen M. Schick's uh, work and uh, is typical. Um, I'll read the parts not in bold and we'll pray together um, the parts that are in bold. So feel free to unmute yourself if you're comfortable doing so. So let these words be our prayer. From the loneliness of troubled times we come to discover that that we are not alone. Into the dwelling place of togetherness we come to collect remnants of hope. From fear that all is lost we come to discover what will save us. Into the comfort of each other's presence we come to feel the strength that has not yet been From darkness we come to wait until our eyes begin to see. Into the refuge of fading dreams we come to remove illusions and focus new visions. From despair we walk alone. Excuse me, from despair that walks alone we come to travel together. Into the dwelling place of generations we come. To pledge allegiance allegiance to being peace peace and doing justice. Gracious God, you have called us to be advocates of peace and justice, to walk humbly with you. We give you this space and this time and this community together that we would be an outpouring into the world. Amen. As Aaron mentioned a little earlier, um, we will be taking communion like we do each week. So if you still need to grab some elements, please feel free to do so. Um, As Aaron also mentioned, um, the way we do this at Central is just to use whatever we have on hand. um, And in the act of um, consuming them together is how we um, practice communion. Even before, you know, moving virtual, uh, we didn't believe that the whatever type of cracker and bread we used on a Sunday morning or juice or wine um, necessarily had any specific magic in it, but rather the act of doing this together is is the meaning um, and the power um, within communion. Um, So with that in mind, um, as we sometimes do, I I wanna remind us um, of the origins of communion beyond beyond the, the Last Supper, story in the early church, um, it really was a meal. Um, And it was a meal in which um, justice and the concept of justice became very central. We see in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul writing this letter because he's heard stories of these meals becoming unjust and those with um, more resources, more money, who didn't have to spend time working out in the field and coming in would get the best seats at the table. That means they got the best food, the best wine, and those coming later had to sit on the outskirts um, of of the um, dining room and are getting scraps by the time it got to them. So already early on in the early church, there's this concept of communion and Eucharist being tied to justice and equality. Um, And I think it's a good reminder um, for us 2,000 years later um, to use this moment, to use communion as the same thing, 
a reminder that we all come together and take whatever it is we have as the bread and we take whatever it is we have as the wine and in so doing we're all the same and equal um, in the moment of saying we are <laughs> in all of our differences and all the beauty of our differences we are one body um, so with that, I will read this prayer um, as we prepare to take communion, and then we'll take it together. Let's pray. Oh God of peace and healing, we come before you feeling powerless to stop the hatred that divides races and nations. We come before you saddened and angered by the denial of human rights in our land. We come before you with wounds deep in our hearts that we long to have healed. We come before you with struggles in our personal lives that it seems will not go away. And we pray, Lord, how long? How long to peace? And we hear not long because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. How long for racial justice? Not long, because no lie can live forever. How long for our wounded hearts? Not long, I call you by name, you are with me, you are mine. How long for our struggles? Not long, for my grace is sufficient, I hold you in everlasting arms beneath which you cannot fall. How long for the healing of what is broken inside and all around us? Not long, for we shall overcome together in partnership, human, holy partnership, we shall overcome. Amen. And with that, I invite you to take whatever it is you have, as uh, is often the case in our household, Cheez-Its for the Waddells, um, and whatever you have is bread in the way that Jesus broke bread and said, this is my body. Each time you take and eat of this, remember me. I invite you to do the same in taking. And likewise, I invite you to take the cup. Today it's coffee. Whatever it is you have, take and drink in our togetherness as the body. May the justice we seek be realized in our own actions and thoughts and in the world. Amen. All right, morning guys. Um, so it's gonna be a light week. Uh, this week, philosophy is Thursday night at 6 p.m. Uh, the gathering is this week, uh, Wednesdays at seven. Um, and then a reminder that Max is coordinating a meal for Ascensia to be delivered on the 29th. Talk to Max if you wanna get looped in and be able to help with that. And then finally, I'm gonna kick it over to Max who has an announcement as well. Thanks, Angie. Um, right back over. Um, I feel like we're a, like a news team. Um, so I just wanted to share, many of you know our friends at Mountainside um, Communion um, in, I think they're in Monrovia technically, um, but we have a lot of friends um, uh, 
through our different circles. We, we partnered with them to go pray outside of Adelanto, the um, migrant holding facility. Um, gosh, is that two years ago now? Almost two years ago. It seems like forever ago, doesn't it? it? Forever ago and yesterday, right? Time has no meaning. It's really, really weird. Um, anyway, um, my good friend, Naomi, and she was at our church for a while too, reached out to me this week. Um, for those of you who don't know, beside, uh, beyond uh, her and her husband, Kevin's um, work um, with the church through for homeless services, Kevin actually, uh, her husband, um, works at homeless services in Hollywood um, and is an advocate um, for homeless um, uh, services in LA. Anyway, she reached out, she put together a whole toolkit. Um, the, Catherine Barger uh, apparently has a nominated Dr. Drew Pinsky, yes, Dr. Drew, that one, um, to sit on the LA board um, for homeless authorities. And essentially anybody that works with homeless services is very opposed to this. Um, apparently there's a lot of views that run counter to all the database um, care that homeless services use. and. Um, are working to try to make their voices heard um, before this nomination gets a vote. So if that's something you're interested in, I know we have a lot of folks in our community who are passionate about um, homelessness um, and resolving that as much as we can. Um, I have a whole toolkit, so just reach out to me and I can connect you with it and I can put you in touch with um, Naomi directly too if you're interested. So shoot me a message or email or whatever the case and I'd be glad to um, hook you up with everything you need to send like an email um, and or do calling if that's something you like doing. That's it. Max, can we have people drop their emails in the chat or just send them to you here? Yeah, absolutely. You can do a direct um, message in the chat um, or feel free to, to drop it in the whole chat if you want everyone to see it too. Yeah, but absolutely, I'd be happy to collect those. Thanks, Max and uh, Angie. So now is the time in our service that we set aside for prayer requests, words of thanksgiving. Um, if you have a joy or a concern you'd like to share, you can unmute and just raise your voice that way um, and we'll pray. Uh, otherwise, you can always put it in the chat column if you're more comfortable um, doing it there. But does anybody have anything this morning they'd like to share? I, I do. Um, so... I was able to convince my aunt and my grandma to get their COVID shot like a month ago and they were due back for their second shot um, Saturday. So I checked in on them and my aunt actually has COVID. So she was not able to get her second shot. Um, she got it taking my grandma to church, but my uncle who got his first shot and my grandma who got her first shot didn't, haven't gotten it. Um, and so I'm just, I, and my aunt's case seems pretty mild. She seems to be doing really well. Um, so I, I see that as like, Hey, look, it looks like that first vaccine helped you out here, but I'm hoping that this doesn't leave the rest of my family to be like, why would I get a vaccine? I'm just going to take yeah. it anyway. And it's like that part. And, and, um, I'm more worried about the, the ramifications of, of this. Um, but they, she seems to be doing okay. Wow. I'm Charlotte. Charlotte. Yeah. Let's, let's pray for Charlotte and all those in our families that I think so many of us are wrestling, so to speak, with family members uh, and trying to get people covered and protected and there's resistance and there's conspiracy theories and all of that resistance. And let's just pray in general also for eyes to be opened and, and hearts to be open. Loving God, we lift up Charlotte and um, 
and just ask for her health and well-being. We we pray for that, and we also just pray for the rest of Desiree's family who are partially vaccinated. And uh, we just ask um, and, and pray for um, all of our family members and friends that are on the fence about the vaccine or resistant. Uh, we pray for a cultural shift um, and just hearts and minds that they might be open and that wisdom and truth might win the day um, and that people's lives would be saved and our communities would be, would be healthy and, and whole. Um, we pray for the safety of our loved ones in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Desiree. Yeah. Um, somebody else this morning. Hey, Aaron. Um, my husband has friends that are, well, his really close friends that are going through a really, really terrible divorce. Um, they have four kids and they've been going through this divorce pretty much the entire time we've been doing, we've been in a pandemic. Um, and so them aside, I just want to pray for their kids because they have four kids ranging from the ages of four to 11. And um, those kids have been moved to a different state and then came back. And then they've been moved to a different house. Then their dad was gone and their dad was back. It's just been a really, it's been a really, really horrible time. So I just want to pray for Ryan's kids. Please. Yeah. We lift up Ryan's kids, um, these children that are in the midst of this divorce. And we pray for their just mental health and emotional support and that they might um, have their needs met and that they might be even shielded from the worst parts of this. But our hearts are, um, uh, our hearts break when we hear about children in the midst of these situations. But we pray for, for this family and we pray for May and all those who are in their circle of friends and support that they might know best how to care for them and, and to be there for them. We lift up these kids in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Um, anybody else? That looks like Cassandra posted in the chat. We could use continued prayers for our teen, Marley. She is suffering and, and angry and so depressed. She's so angry about all the injustices in our world. Amen. And that she wishes she'd never been born. Oh my God. And, and spends a lot of time wishing she could die. We're really struggling and I can't speak out loud to ask because she, oh gosh, maybe I shouldn't be reading this, but um, she um, can't hear my voice, but um, I think you still want me to pray, um, Cassandra. So yeah, let's, you're wearing headphones, so that's good. Um, let's, let's, let's pray for Marley. Loving God, we lift up Marley in this, um, in this very difficult hour of her life and the grief and just the trauma she's experiencing as a result of, of what's going on in our world. We pray for her mental health and well-being. We pray um, for her inner strength. We just, um, just our hearts break for Cassandra and her family and, and Marley as they walk through this time together, but we pray for their support holistically and um, be with Marley, we pray, Lord. May she know the love of her family and friends, the support of her family and friends. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, a, I think lots of people are struggling like that. And she's not alone. Um, 
All right. With that, Max, I think I'll hand over to you. Yeah, thanks. Um, we're going to do uh, today, uh, like we have in the past, um, before Lent especially. Um, but for those of you familiar, it's very similar to the exercise called Lexio Divina, um, which is often when uh, we take a Bible passage or Bible verse and we read it a few times and reflect on it and see what we meditate on, what uh, words stand out to us. So we're going to do that, but like we do, um, we're going to not do it with a Bible verse specifically today, um, but we're going to do it. Um, I've chosen a uh, Langston Hughes uh, poem, um, might be very familiar. Langston Hughes, of course, um, very um, prominent uh, Black poet, author um, of the early uh, 1900s. It's called What Happens to a Dream Deferred. So I'll read it a couple times. The first time I invite you to just listen, and then I invite you to listen for a particular word or a particular phrase that stands out to you. And then I'll read it again. We'll just take a little time meditating with it. So I invite you to enter into this process with me now. Hear these words. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? I'll read it one more time and I invite you to sit with it for a bit. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? God, may we be people um, that break the systems uh, and the policies and the practices and the philosophies and the beliefs that keep deferring dreams, that keep deferring justice, 
um, to wait for a more convenient time. God, may we be people <clears throat> of radical inclusion, of radical justice, of radical love. We are called to take part, God, in the fight um, for love, for equality and justice, um, for our neighbors, for our brothers and our sisters, the black and brown bodies whose dreams, God, if not been completely ended, at least deferred. So we pray that we might be people of action um, and let justice roll down. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Max. Jumped off the channel, but I'm back. Uh, can everybody hear me? Okay. Great. Am I being heard and seen? Aaron, we can hear you a bit. It's pretty, uh, your audio's glitching a bit. Okay, all right. So, see if I can fix this. That's not gonna work. Can you hear me now? Okay. All right, we'll just go for it. We'll, we'll, I paid for the better uh, internet access here at the house. I upgraded to like the high performance package, you know, um, as you do. So, all right, all right, we'll, we'll go with it. We'll go with it. So I was all set to talk about the Ascension today. And then I kind of had a change of heart as the week wore on. And I'm going to postpone that talk to address, obviously, more pressing matters, and that's the shocking amount of violence we've seen over the last couple of weeks, both mass shootings and police shootings and other forms of police violence, over-the-top police violence. And I think many of us feel overwhelmed, uh, disgusted, saddened, and, of course, angry. And, and, and we feel this way because these things keep happening and at the frequency they do, right? I mean, it's just constant, but I wanna focus more on police violence today rather than the mass shootings. We can, we can certainly talk about both, but for time and clarity's sake, I'm gonna focus more on, on the former. One of the things we're hearing a lot today in reaction to police violence is the slogan or the hashtag, abolish the police. Uh, have, have some of you heard that hashtag or have seen that? Okay, all right, I'm seeing nods, good. Um, yeah, um, it's a pretty radical and inflammatory slogan in a lot of people's eyes, I think. And I think for a lot of people, questioning law enforcement, questioning their power, especially questioning whether or not they should exist, is seen as like questioning the existence of God. In fact, I think people by and large are more comfortable with those questioning the existence of the deity than they are with those who question the need for police. I think in the same way, some people believe that without religion, society will literally fall apart and, and people will just rape, murder, and steal at will. I think many more people believe that would be the case 
if we no longer had an armed paramilitary organization patrolling our streets day and night. In a sense, law enforcement is a sacred object in a lot of people's minds, especially if you're white and affluent. The police function like a god for all practical purposes in, in many people's minds. Uh, individual officers, I think, are often seen as like priests or pastors, you know, called to their positions. And life. And so I think for a lot of people, there's something taboo about questioning cops when they exercise that power. People revere it so much. Like, um, you know, they're like, who are you to question them? Like, who are you to question God? His ways are above our ways. Their ways are above our ways. Um, you, can't, you can't pretend to understand them. You know, like God, they're sovereign and, and almighty. You just don't question him or, or them. And I think many people think of law enforcement in that same kind of deeply religious way and just trust that no matter what they do, you know, it's, it must be for our own good or the good of society, even if it doesn't seem that way. There's something kind of theological about the way that law enforcement, I think, is regarded in this country. And this is why you'll, you'll hear evangelicals quickly come to the defense of police every time they're criticized by quoting Romans 13, right? Whoever resists authority is opposing God. You know, whoever resists authority is opposing what God has set in place, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. You've probably heard that passage before. The police are therefore, in a lot of people's eyes, basically the instrument of God on earth, which is, which is a fascinating that's a fascinating point of view. Here at Central, we critique oppressive gods a lot, right? We, we uh, have made a, our business to kind of deconstruct oppressive deities. And I think we need to critique the god of law enforcement too. We need to do a little deconstruction here. And I, I think the best way to do that is to understand some of the historical roots of policing. I think it surprises people to hear that police have not always existed. I think that surprises people. The, the job is actually a relatively recent invention, less than, less than 200 years old, actually. Prior to their existence, uh, civilization certainly existed, and people were not subjected to roaming bands of murderers and thieves and rapists, which, again, is, I think, what people think um, will happen if, if we fundamentally alter the law enforcement profession. The, the history of policing in America begins in the 18th century in the South, where police forces began as slave patrols funded by plantation owners, basically capturing runaway slaves and making sure slave revolts didn't happen. And if they did, they were, they were quelled pretty quickly. However, the modern model of policing really began in the 19th century as wealthy capitalists feared labor unions, and people in general feared the large waves of Catholic, Irish, Italian, German, and, and Eastern European immigrants that were flooding into cities. And all this drove the call for the preservation of law and order, or at least the definition of it promoted by those in power. What, what's important to understand here, not so much the particulars, but the general theme that policing began as a way for the powerful to keep those without power in check, 
to keep certain ethnic and socioeconomic classes in check, and it has largely remained the case. One can really trace a lot of the modern problems we have in the United States with policing and its antagonist, antagonistic relationship to communities of color just back to the 1980s, actually, and, and the so-called war on drugs. If I'm 45, um, and I certainly remember the 1980s, maybe some of you don't, but there, you know, you've probably heard of this, this term, the war on drugs. Well, it's, it comes from that time period. There's a great documentary on Netflix right now that I encourage you to, to watch if this subject matter interests you. It's called Crack, colon, Cocaine, Corruption, and Conspiracy. It's really good. And at that time, in, in the 1980s, the Reagan administration, in an effort to support Nicaraguan Contras in their fight against communism, allowed them to basically ship just massive amounts of cocaine in, into the United States, again, to support their war effort against the communists in Central America. Um, you know, so, so the Reagan administration essentially turned a blind eye to just copious amounts of cocaine that were flooding into the United States from Central America, the likes of which we had never seen before. And what's interesting is that cocaine at that time was too expensive for black inner city folk and was thus a white middle class and, and affluent drug. So, so nobody really cared uh, about it too much. But then people figured out how to turn it into crack with a little bit of of cocaine, but also made it much cheaper and, and therefore marketable to poor people in the inner cities. Thus, the crack epidemic began and basically destroyed entire working class neighborhoods, many of them predominantly Black and Latino. And yet, two thirds, two thirds of crack users even then were white, uh, but almost none of them were ever prosecuted. Reagan, Bush, and Clinton saw the crack epidemic and drugs in general as a predominantly black problem. Thus mass incarceration of black America began in the 1980s and, and through the 90s. This further destroyed and impoverished black communities, which led to more drug use and more crime. And the cycle just continued and continues in the effects of which can still be seen today. But it was during the 80s and 90s that Congress, in an effort to fight the war on drugs, drugs that it had clandestinely allowed into the into United States for political purposes, remember, Congress began funneling tens of millions of dollars into police departments and charged them with basically waging this war on the black community. All of this money and political pressure encouraged police departments to essentially militarize and become basically paramilitary organizations complete with military grade weapons and tactics. And it all began with the racist war on drugs. This is really an important thing to understand in order to understand how we got to the current police culture that we have. That kind of background is really necessary in understanding our current situation. That police culture is really rooted in and a reflection of deeper, the deeper racial sentiments and anxieties found throughout white America and that have been there for a long time. This is why you see many white Americans react to stories of police brutality today, especially against brown and black bodies by saying, well, they got what they deserve. They shouldn't have run. They shouldn't have resisted. You know, this is, you know, the fact that they got killed. It's sad, but you know what? They shouldn't have resisted, right? You hear this kind of rhetoric or you'll hear people say, this is just the cost 
of keeping society safe. You know, if, if the police get out of hand a little bit sometimes, it's okay because their job is tough and the people they deal with are just horrible people. You know, police killings and police brutality, as ugly as it is, it's just the cost of keeping society safe. You, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. The eggs in this case, of course, being brown and black bodies. It's as if brown and black bodies have to be sacrificed every now and then on the altar of white supremacy to keep America safe. So this is how I've come to understand how the religion of white supremacy came to worship the God of law enforcement and why that needs to change. I personally don't really like the hashtag abolish the police because I think it's a bit misleading and alienating. Most of the people I know who use that hashtag don't want to abolish help. Now, abolishing the police does not mean abolishing help. I think that's an important point, but it does mean abolishing a certain kind of law enforcement and a certain kind of police culture and replacing many law enforcement personnel with social workers. I think that's, an, that's very important to understand, which I think is a good idea. Yes, I think we, we, we need an armed response sometimes, but those circumstances are very rare. Uh, as many of you know, I was a police chaplain. I was actually a police chaplain for Glendale PD for, I think, more than five years. I think it was six or seven years, uh, up until a couple of years ago when I resigned for perhaps obvious reasons. But I've been on countless ride-alongs and got to see firsthand how policing is done and what the mentality and the attitude is of many police officers. You know, Obviously, most cops are decent people who genuinely want to help people. I think everybody knows that. But the job is 95% social work. I don't know if a lot of people understand that. The job is really 95% social work. And most cops don't like that part of the job. They're not, they're not social workers at heart, nor are they trained to be social workers. You know, social work is an entire different, it's an entire profession that people go to school for, right? Uh, cops are basically trained to go to war. And they are taught to see everybody as a potential threat which is the cause of a lot of the problems we see today. But there's so much about police culture that is rooted in larger culture, in, in, in a larger culture and a, and a longer history of white supremacy, anti-blackness and class warfare. And I just wanted to scratch the surface here a little bit today and, and hopefully stimulate a dialogue. But I also want us to see these structures as gods. I think that's important. So-called principalities and powers, as the apostle Paul would put it. As a spiritual community, I think we are uniquely able to understand and articulate how these things function a lot like a religion and these, how these things are idols and, and sacred objects that people worship and, and viciously defend today. You know, it's all very interesting in that way. I think it's also important for us to talk about this as a way of practicing repentance. You know, we talk a lot about communal sin here at Central and, and the need to repent of communal sin. Um, I think the church in general in the United States has lost sight of that definition or that concept of, of communal sin, especially in regards uh, to things like racism or homophobia and our need to confront it and to repent of it, both individually and collectively. Um, that's seen um, as, as uh, leftist propaganda today, but there's biblical precedence for it. And we've discussed that recently. But, but that's why I think it's important for us to talk about this today. 
and specifically our thoughts and attitudes about policing, because I think I think a lot lives there in, in our attitudes and thoughts about policing. I think there's a lot there to discuss. And I by no means have it all figured out. I want to be very clear about that. I've I've provided my point of view here, but I also want to, I have a lot to learn and I want to hear from you. Uh, so let's talk about it. Um, what are your thoughts and feelings about all of this? Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts and feelings about recent events? Um, how are you feeling? What, what, are you, what are you learning? Does anybody wanna, wanna chime in today? It's a tough topic. <laughs> also curious about how you're reacting to what I said. <laughs> uh, did, do you agree? Do you disagree? Uh, it's okay, you know. Um, are you on the abolish the police side, you know? If so, why? Why not, you know? Hey, Aaron, I think you alluded to it a little bit, but I can't help when you were talking, what kept going through my head is how much, gosh, how am I, how do I say this? How much it mirrors evangelicalism. Yeah. So it's just, it's such a, it's such a, I mean, the white supremacy, essentially religion is evangelicalism. Um, and that's kind of what I kept thinking about when you were talking is just how much of that religion always feels threatened. Yeah. Um, they always feel attacked. And so that was just kind of what I was thinking when you were discussing. Yeah. I think that's a good observation, mate. I, I did want to obviously couch this conversation in a larger conversation about, you know, uh, you know, deconstruction and, and specifically the need to kind of deconstruct are, you know, a lot of us come out of that evangelical tradition and can see a lot of that same mentality, um, which I, I think sees, you know, basically sees, sees gods in, in a lot of this stuff. I, I think that's important to recognize. Thank you, May. Yeah. A lot of people treat law enforcement and state power in the same way that they treat, you know, God and, and religion. It's, it's a big other to be revered in that question and especially if you benefit from those power structures, right? Like evangelicalism and, and like, you know, state power and the police. Um, why would you question that? You know, why would you, why would you want to hear that deconstructed? Yeah. There's a good connection point to be make there, made there. And for both of them, what keeps coming up for me is the idea of um, a lack of imagination. Um, and I, I mean, I relate to this. <laughs> As many of you know, um, you know, grew up in a very conservative uh, culture and very evangelical conservative. And I just like, I remember thinking like, there's no other way to do this. Like, what are you talking about? Like yeah. police or the police? Right. Like, oh, it's just gonna be crazy. And it really, I mean, it's really a process, right? I mean, like deconstruction with all, with all things, but they're both in, in the evangelical framework um, and, you know, in my experience, just in um, some of the more conservative frameworks, and I know this probably isn't, you know, <laughs> radical to say, 
Um, but there's just a separation between like, can we actually imagine a different world? Can we actually imagine things getting better? And if your answer is no, then you're naturally inclined, right? To say, then we have to protect and preserve and we'll just slowly watch everything decay. And we, our job is to slow that decay as much as possible, right? So it's like, we need protection because things are just gonna keep getting worse and God's gonna come back and the world's gonna burn. So it's like we built, we literally and figuratively, right? Go into the mode of we building these walls and arming ourselves for this just descent into chaos. And, and if your answer is yes, it's like, well, then we got work to do. Like we have a lot of things to change. We have systems to change. We have policies to change. Like we have new new systems to build. We like, and I feel like there's an inherent split right there, right? In terms of do we see our roles in world in the world, whether you're you know Christian or not or evangelical or not, do we see our roles as trying to build a better world or to conserve and protect? The world for as long as we can as as it just as as the bad guys right like destroy it um and i'm sure you know every, it's all a spectrum so it's not no one's fully one or the other but it just seemed as as you were talking then may your comment too just really made that connection point between the two different philosophies that it seems are at, are at play here yeah yeah, good points, Max. I, uh, Aaron, I think one of the key points you talked about were, uh, <clears throat> was uh, how the preponderance of police work is actually social work. Um, and so, I mean, I think um, uh, to, to some degree, uh, a huge part of the problem, I mean, you know, we're using a sledgehammer on a thumbtack Exactly. No, it's it's calling the Marines in when someone's having a mental health crisis or, yeah. there's a, you know, or something like it's it's you're setting a hammer. You're using a hammer to do the job of a screwdriver. Sorry, it's maybe that's a bad analogy, but it's like <laughs> when you when you send in the hammer, everything's treated as a nail. Yeah. And so I, I think I think a huge uh, the huge shift that has to happen at some point is, yeah, is um, is reimagining the police force where maybe a significant part of them are not carrying a gun, but carrying uh, a, a better training for the situations yeah. they're gonna encounter. I, I think back, I grew up, I, I mean, I, bear with me, it sounds hard to relate this to Los Angeles or other big cities, but I, cause I grew up in a town of 600 people. And um, so even with the surrounding farms, you know, you maybe had like a thousand people or something. There was one night watchman, there wasn't a single police officer uh, for the city. So he had literally a night watchman who was uh, in, in some cases, a guy that had a, some other kind of day job or part-time job. Um, and they would come on duty around 10 PM and basically just kind of hang out, circle some of the streets, keep an eye on things until like 6 AM. And uh, I, <laughs> I could say I got to ride along with, the night watchman some nights or maybe I kind of sort of <clears throat> was told I had to ride along with the night watchman for a few nights but um, at any rate it was amazing how with without any violence without any force this guy actually kept all the drunks <laughs> kept, kept everybody kept everything in order 
nobody got hurt. Nobody got thrown in jail. Um, you know, it, it just was, uh, but he, he knew all the people. And I think that, that too, if, uh, if the police forces, if the, if the cops knew the people they were working with, which again, goes back to that reimagining it to more of there to serve than to, uh, protect, you know, yeah. But it, we're talking about a radical change, honestly. Uh, and, and, and it's not just about, you know, uh, changing police, you know, police departments. It's about changing, honestly, the culture as well, because all of this rises out of, you know, greater, you know, cultural features that are just beyond, you know, what's happening in police department. They're more of a, a symptom, a reflection of what's actually deep seated. Um, so, you know, it's easy to blame the police, right? Uh, because they're the instruments of what ultimately are the, the violent and oppressive sentiments, anxieties, and inclinations that exist within white America. I mean, they're, they're basically a symptom of a deeper disease. Uh, and I don't want to bash police officers. I have friends who are cops, but we have to be very clear about these things. And, you know, I'm a pastor, and I'll be the first one to say that there's a lot of asshole pastors. <laughs> I'll be the first one to acknowledge there's a lot of unhealthy, evil, oppressive, people that are drawn to this profession because it gives them power, because it gives them enormous power over people. Um, I'm the first one to admit that. Uh, you know, I think if more police were, uh, you know, honest about that, instead of drawing the thin blue line and never, you know, speaking out, you know, uh, not breaking ranks, um, you know, I, so, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm going off now, but, you know, <laughs> I'm seeing a great conversation in the chat about um, the, the inherent authoritarianism of evangelicalism and how that plays in here. Um, yeah, I think that's some really, some really good points being made. Aaron, I was having my, I have a cousin who's a, who's a police officer, a detective, and, um, I had lengthy conversations with him about this and we were going back and forth and, um, and for a long time, I just couldn't quite, I, he kept insisting, you know, he lost his, his partner in the line of duty. You know, his partner died, left behind a wife and kids, you know, and just a routine going to a house, open the door, the guy opens fire, kills his partner, you know, like, and, and, and he kept saying, you just don't understand. People don't understand how dangerous it is. People don't understand. And, and, and I was like, yeah, but you know, the social stuff and unrest, and then I realized, oh, we're not talking about the same, we're talking about fundamentally different places. Where he goes to police in an urban area is where society is broken down. Not, it's not Burbank or Glendale, California, where society, basically the structures of society's pillars are intact. It's fairly clean, it's fairly safe. Most of it is domestic. Like he's sent into these places. And, and then I was like, we're not even talking about the same world. Yeah. And I think that is why part of the, 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 the binary between this conversation is the thinking of the either perceived by people who are more conservative or evangelical who think the world is all guns and violence and gangsters, you know, versus those of us who live in safe environments and think it's really not that bad. We don't need it. And then somewhere in between are the people who experience it. Um, which are the social workers who are on the front lines and some of the police that are on the front lines. And in there, it gets messy because we're not talking, we're not always talking about the same experiences. Um, yeah. 
you know, because I think, uh, and, and then when I, when I realized that I'm like, oh, I don't think we're talking about the same thing, are we? And he's like, no, I don't think we are. <laughs> because what you're talking about is this perfect world. And I'm talking about having to go down to the inner city and yeah. try to figure out who murdered this guy's sister. And they won't talk to me because I'm a police officer and they don't trust me. You know, and then like, okay, we have, we don't even, I don't even know where to begin with this conversation. Yeah, Nathan, I think you raise a really good point. And I, I think that there's, we have to, I think, ch all, change the law enforcement profession, not just for the good of society, but also for the good of these police officers. This is not a good job. I mean, honestly, it is not a good job. It is, it is an impossible job and one that actually creates the very problem it's seeking to resolve yes. by, 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 uh, again, as a police chaplain for many years, I was hired as a as a as clergy to help the fun. My primary job was to be there for the police to help them process the trauma of the job, which is actually kind of like dysfunctional, because I wasn't actually able to do that. But the the department recognized these cops are being traumatized in the mm -hmm. field because we're asking too much of them, and they're, they're becoming unhealthy individuals themselves. They're not just abusing alcohol, and their marriages are ending, and they're, not, and, and they're basically going into the field with, with anger and hate and cynicism, and that's being poured out onto the populace. But, I mean, this is just not healthy for them. It's a, it's the, the problem is it's not a good job. The, the job has to change, and, mm -hmm. and the ramifications of that job are not just being being you know poured out in a negative fashion on people on communities of color but it's it's fundamentally harming the police themselves does that make sense mm -hmm. it's like um you know if you ever watch like the the batman films um you know it, you, you you've learned that you know bruce wayne is you know this wealthy capitalist that's actually producing the circumstances that are giving rise to the very villains that he goes out and fights when he becomes batman <laughs> and it's not really ever acknowledged if you if from a social science perspective, you realize, wait a minute, Bruce Wayne is the one who's creating the villains through these oppressive, you know, basically you're running this capitalist empire. Uh, he's creating the very, you know, degradation that's a social fabric that he is then going out and warring against as Batman. And it just, I think that's kind of the dynamic that's taking place in policing in America, specifically, we're talking about America here, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so again, I, I, I'm saying all that to say, you know, we need to change policing also for, out of compassion for these folks that, you know, wear the badge too. It's not just about, you know, changing for the sake of society and protecting communities of color, but these people need help too. Anyway, yeah, you yeah. made me think well, then of that. You start to, yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you because it, it goes back to the good, bad binary, but then they get militarized by the constant stress and trauma that they see. And, yeah. and... They're and not then trained. when they feel like they're not supported, you know, yeah. they will, then they get radicalized by going to whoever they feel supported by, whoever says blue lives matter. I will support. Thank you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and now they're there and they don't feel, so it, it, it gets, it, I think you're, I think you're, you're completely right. It's for the sake, it's for the health and well-being of everybody in the situation. And, and uh, it's structural. It all goes back to structural justice rather than individual <laughs> perceptions of justice. Right. Good thoughts. Yeah. Uh, somebody else want to jump in? It made me think a couple of things, Aaron. First, you as a chaplain being sent out to deal with the trauma that police officers experience in the field is, you know, the department sending you out without training yeah. to handle and deal with those situations too. And it reminds me that like 
changing policing is so important and should be a, the goal that we have, but that it's so much bigger than that too. Like you were talking about it at a, a larger societal level, you know, we've got a justice system that was built on racism and oppressing of black and brown bodies. And until those things change, our policing system is not going to be able to be radically transformed too. So there's so many things that have to happen at the same time. Um, you know, like we're in a country that has the highest incarceration rates in the world. That's mind boggling. I mean, we have five times the prison population of China and there's more than a billion people, a billion and a half people in China. Like the numbers just don't make sense for how policing is enforced here. And then, you know, thinking about kind of the larger cultural shift that needs to happen is, you know, we've got this mythology, which you've talked about before of being a, you know, pro-military peacekeepers of the world kind of perspective. And so, you know, we have the largest armed forces in the world sending people over conflicts around the world. And those are often the very people coming back with war traumas who are drawn into these policing positions. And so you have people starting from a place of extreme trauma um, who are given weapons and told to keep the peace. Uh, it's, there's just so much to break down here. Um, yeah. But I suppose I would also just briefly add that the fact that these conversations are happening in churches, in our culture, and in the media is a really positive step, I think. I do have hope at the same time, um, even though this is a huge problem to tackle. I don't know how many churches are talking about it, but yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I just think, you know, getting back to the the mythology or the theology behind it all you know i i as long as people's knee-jerk reaction is that things are set up the way that they are work best you know we you know the current situation is must be the way that things have to you know be run for things to run a lot of people just you know take that for granted as, as long as that's the case and as long as i think specifically white america continues to worship and revere the gun and the badge um, and not question it like they wouldn't question God. As long as that's the case, nothing's going to change. We, we, there has to be a kind of societal deconstruction of that deity. Um, you know, the gods of white supremacy and the God of law enforcement. Uh, and I have a hard time seeing that happening. Uh, we've now had how many, you know, constant, hope, Bob, maybe you're right. Maybe that's, it's happening more more than it ever has, but you know we've had so much police violence, especially caught on camera now and 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 publicized repeatedly every single week, and people are just they're they're almost becoming more entrenched in their in their in in their beliefs rather than actually critically examining you know their beliefs in these regards. Does that make sense? It's more of like they're becoming more entrenched in their. And their fundamentalist beliefs about law enforcement. Um, you could put it put it that way, I think. But um, yeah. Anyway, I, I hope that we're able to have these tough conversations with family and friends. Nathan, I know that you've you've had 
you know, really good conversations with your family members and law enforcement. Those are tough conversations, you know? Um, yeah, I remember um, talking specifically with a Christian sheriff's deputy a few years ago about this matter. He was absolutely resistant to anything I had to say about um, Black Lives Matter or uh, uh, racial profiling. And he actually said to me, he's like, Aaron, you just don't understand. Black folk love to fight. You just don't understand. Anytime I, any, we, are, we are told and I am trained and my experience is that black folk just love to fight. So, you know, you don't understand. So when I go into a situation, he said, you know, where I have to deal with somebody who's African, who a person of color, I am, I'm going in there just ready to fight. And that mentality is, um, I think, in large part, why you see this violence. I mean, you know, police are trained that if you, if you touch a cop, if you get pulled over and you show any resistance, and if he or she thinks that there's any threat to them, they suddenly have this unbelievable margin where they're allowed to essentially obliterate you, body slam you. I mean, basically break your bones if they think, if you just lay one finger on them or they think you're a threat. I mean, it's shocking the amount of power we give them. Um, and when they go into a situation and they already are cynical or think that you are going to, you know, be a threat to them and they've got to dominate you. I mean, that is just, that is just, you know, uh, fuel that is just ready for a spark, you know, and the cops bring the spark. And that's often what happens. Anyway, I'm, you know, that's, that's the deeper dynamics a lot of people don't understand behind this culture. But anyway, um, other thoughts today. Really good conversation in the chat, everybody. <sighs> hey, JP. Hey. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say kind of along the lines of what Bob said that, you know, it's good that these conversations are happening. Um, I'm actually, um, happy that a lot more people are listening, you know, because I think in the past people have listened, but it's in small sections. That's Thea back there. Um, she wants coffee, by the way. That <laughs> <laughs> the conversation is national. Yeah, is a really big deal. I I don't know that it's ever been like that, and um. You know, I, I think that the listening part is what's really, really important because, you know, you see the, the, the violence and the deaths, but um, like the harassment, it doesn't, it doesn't get the, the coverage because, you know, nobody died, you know, there's a lot of the police encounters that don't result in, in anything, not even a ticket, it's just what are you doing? Why are you here? Yeah. And, um, you know, so, so the disposition creates a kind of, of lack of trust, whatever the case may be. And I think that that's the part of, because of the extreme circumstances, people are now listening to the overall, you know, thing. And I feel like 
you know, part of the conversation with police also, um, let's say God as policeman, is uh, a lot of people or a certain kind of person wants to have an instrument where the wrath is for people over there. Yeah. That makes sense. So the police is the tool to get the other people. Nobody wants an aggressive police force for them. It's always for other people. Yeah. Right. And, you know, same thing, like God's wrath isn't for us, Israel, Christians, whatever. It's for the pagans and, the, you know, the immoral, the other people. And um, I think what's happening right now is other people is us, you know, and now people are listening, whether it's, you know, even if it's not your race, I think people now it's in your face, it's at home and you, you see it on, on TV and it feels bad, like really bad, right? Like I think, um, I, I don't know, I was listening to somebody that said like, when George Floyd died, everybody felt bad, cop or not, because that's a long time to watch something really, really horrible. Yeah. And if you're human, it's, it's uncomfortable. Nobody wants to see, nobody, I don't care how pro-cop anything you are, nobody wants to see that, you know? And unless, you know, the, the, the small minority of people that are like specifically racist against, you know, people that look like George Floyd, maybe they were okay with it, but anybody else that even has a slight racial bias can see that that's a human and they don't want to see that, you know? So it, it forces the dialogue. And I, I think that for me, that's like, if there's any like silver lining to this, it's that people are actually really, really listening and that it's not other people, it's, it's us. Yeah, yeah, good thoughts. Thanks JP for sharing that perspective. Yeah. Other thoughts before we conclude today? Yeah, and may police are trained to, in de-escalation techniques, but a lot of cops are not good at it. That's important to understand. Some cops are good at it, some are not, but they're all trained in de-escalation. But it's 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 so much of the violence that we see uh, on the in the media, like in the videos, stuff like that, is is basically because the cops are are actually the escalators of the violence. They they're actually it's not the, you know, the George Floyds there. It's really the cops that are escalating the situation. That's, that's what we're seeing. Uh, and again, that's because for a lot of reasons, but it's a, it's a bad job. I mean, and it's in a sense, it's just not a, a job that's good for you. And it's not a job that's even possible to fulfill. It's a bad job. Um, but yeah, it, you're right. May. It, uh, they are trained in de-escalation. They just, Many of them don't aren't good at it. I was going to throw out a couple thoughts just on some perspective. I've gotten uh, the limited. I'll say my limited scope um, on because the thoughts that, that have been boiling in my head, uh, based a little bit based on what uh, JP was saying, was 
there's some levels of, I, I think from, from my perspective, one of the important things is where a lot of this breaks down is people's inability to have empathetic conversations with um, people from entirely different backgrounds, people with entirely different experiences, whether it's with a lifelong police officer or somebody who grew up in the ghetto of Compton. Uh, all I know is people relate to things based on their experiences and what they see. Um, and, and that can swing in a lot of, as we know, infinite different directions. Uh, so like, for example, I was thinking about my own bubble as moving out here to the South when I've lived in California my whole life. I've been here a few months now and I don't, obviously it's a pandemic. I'm not going out and socializing, but I have been exploring town a lot because I'm, uh, there's some gaps between the job I was doing and the job I'm doing now. And I was doing DoorDash for a while. Um, and so I have been going around town, especially around the college area. And I just saw like, based on all I've seen, it's just like some cop cars wandering around town and um, a, a lot around the campus. And then I saw one experience about um, where I was driving by picking up some food and I saw this uh, black, probably he looked like a college student, black dude. And he came up and there were a couple of cops getting coffee and this guy came up and like, was uh talking out to one of the cops and then the cop turned around and he reached his hand out and the two of them shook hands and i was like uh oh then maybe they're friends or what what have you but like what, what i was just thinking about is like i know so little about this conversation like that this interaction alone went so many different directions as i was witnessing it play out so i was like because of what had just happened, you know, this is like probably right when the trial of Derek Chauvin is about to get going. Like, so things are on my mind and I'm like, okay, where is this going? And cause I, I saw what looked like it could be a really hostile interaction. And then it turned out to be really friendly. And then I was like, oh, maybe they're friends. But then I thought about, okay, well maybe this black kid is just trying to suck up to this cop, you know, or like, there are so many different scenarios. We don't know the circumstances of these two people involved in that moment. Um, but I was thinking if I am somebody who is very grounded in what I, my belief system, say I'm an evangelical and like I'm leaning conservative, I'm like, oh, well, see, here's, here's, here's just proof that like this, not all cops are like this. Here's just proof that like black people don't have anything to worry about. Like, so I could interpret this any any which way depending on my situation and that just got me to kind of start thinking about this is like we take anecdotal things every day and we try to get it to in, in a way that fits our system and the way that we see things and I'm I'm just kind of putting that out there to say like I, I like these conversations a lot I, I miss them and I, I I do especially the I saw the link that uh, Lakin posted in there about there, you know, there are these alternatives that seem to be working that, that we can, when we hear things like abolish the police, that word triggers a lot of people who yeah. may not be on board with it. And yeah, that's why I'm maybe not on board with that uh, vernacular either. But the problem is, yeah, people just, 
they take the face value and they, they just, most people, they have only the brain power to click it into like what's working for them that day. Um, and I think that the one silver lining here is that we're at a point where a lot of us are kind of having to be forced to, to reckon with these things and peel back a couple layers. Um, so yeah, just, those are some of my tangential thoughts I wanted to throw out there. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, and I just wanted to, I think that's a great way to conclude today. And, and, you know, just, just to say that having the capacity for empathetic conversations and to hold whatever convictions you have, whether it be religious convictions or political convictions, lightly enough to have them be open to change and to, you know, take into consideration new information that conflicts with your current views. That is a huge skill. That is a huge skill that a lot of people do not have, but can acquire. I think everybody can acquire that skill in life, that they can, that they can be an open-minded enough to hold on to some of the, you know, whatever their convictions and beliefs are, you know, to be part of a tribe, you could say, but to be open enough to like having that be informed and nuanced and, and change somewhat. I, I think that's huge. And if we can just be those people ourselves, I think we, we strive to be a community that is open to changing our deep, our closest held convictions and beliefs, but being people that help other people get to that place where they can just be a little more open, a little, a little more, um, you know, uh, listening. Uh, that's huge. And, and honestly, if that's what we can help people do in this context or in that context, man, so much good can happen in the world and uh, so much can change, I believe. Uh, so that's, that's, that's the hopeful way of ending this today. <laughs> um, I want to thank you for being here and, and for having a, a great conversation. As, as usual. Um, but go in peace. Uh, we're, we're formally dismissed. To all of you folks who joined us for the first time, welcome. Um, glad to see we didn't scare all of you away. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're done today. And, and uh, next week, Ashley Rope will be, will be speaking. Not sure what she's going to speak on, but she's always got a, a good word. And I uh, hope you can uh, join us for that. But uh, yeah, go in peace.